welcome back Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. As you know, they're a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. For years, he and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-mind issue for voters and our national leaders through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back in the house Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Hey, Scott, hope you had a good Memorial Day weekend, and welcome back to the show. Yeah, likewise. It's always good to reflect and uh, remember and relax a little bit. Uh, I had a dad who served in the Vietnam War, and so it's it's good to think about that as well. Uh, there's a lot on the agenda coming up too, so I'm glad I'm glad we have a chance to talk. Absolutely, always. It's a, it's not. It's definitely not dull, and it's not dull with specifics. Uh, in, you know, in regard to manufacturing and in regard to jobs. You know, Scott, there, there's this idea that machines and robots are replacing people. Um, but that really isn't the reason we have been losing and continue to lose jobs in America, correct? Yeah, th- that's right. And, again, it's one of those things where, you know, it kind of defies logic in a way because if you were to walk into a factory 50 years ago, you would have seen a lot of, well, mostly men uh, that were, uh, you know, using lots of muscle power to, uh, to to make widgets. And today, it's mostly machines making those widgets, and there are fewer men, and they're working on the machines, and there aren't as many of them. So you're like, of course, automation, robotics, they 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 displace jobs, but. In the past, what always happened is that those workers were able to get jobs at new factories that were making new products uh, and that we were growing our economy at a, at a healthy clip, say, you know, 3, 3% growth, and that we were holding our own in the global marketplace, that we didn't have persistently large trade deficits. That is that we were supplying a lot of own, our own market from here in the United States and we were exporting a lot uh, abroad. And so it is entirely accurate to say that even within in manufacturing on a on a net level that automation robotics had a very small effect on manufacturing job loss uh, over the last uh, few decades. Uh, but but certainly if you pick up the headlines, uh, you'll see, you know, the robot apocalypse uh, and all of this about uh, about, about job loss, and and so it, it's one of those things that when Washington starts talking about solutions to this, well, should we get have a tougher trade policy? Should we focus it all on manufacturing? This question always comes up. You know, w- one of the things I'm a Democrat, and I know the AAM is nonpartisan, but one thing that cannot be ignored is that uh, Democrats tend to back unions. Unions provide a heck of a lot of manufacturing jobs and have been fighting uh, the sucking sound of jobs since NAFTA and uh, into present day with bad trade deals and bad choices by CEOs uh, just to you know, make a buck or save a buck by shipping uh, jobs overseas. Democrats normally do very well in Rust Belt states. And we look at numbers, um, the working class is, again, going to be big numbers that contribute to those final numbers in the Electoral College that, de- that determines who the winner is going to be, whether it's in a House race, a Senate race, or a presidential race. 
Now, in 2018, the midterm elections, uh, Democrats don't come out necessarily, and normally they were the working-class white voters that were among the Democrats that went to Donald Trump. But if we want policies to change, we, we need to see change, and we need to see change in the composite of our Congress. So when we look at 2018 and even on to 2020, when it will be another presidential election as well as, um, as, well as House and Senate seats, uh, what do Democrats need to do to gain that rust belt back, uh, would you say? Because there's definitely a revolt by the working class, and that revolt is against global elites who, you know, are shipping jobs overseas. And, you know, sorry to say, our president is among those global uh, elites and hasn't made good so far in the promises he has talked about uh, when he was campaigning. Yeah, Leslie, I think the challenge for Democrats, and, and I think this is a real issue, and I, yeah, we're a nonpartisan organization. I come from a strong Democratic and labor background. And what I fear is that, you know, people in the heartland uh, feel like perhaps even none of the parties represent their interests, that they're, you know, they're about identity groups and about, uh, uh, you know, social social rights, uh, but when it comes to the economic concerns of the working class, that uh, they play a backseat, and in some cases they feel very condescended to. And in a way, this has been exacerbated by the election, because Trump certainly talked to the some of the concerns of the working class, and you rightly point out that he's, you know, hip hypocritical on a lot of these issues, but... Uh, by talking about the value of those factory jobs or those mining jobs uh, and, and talking about the value of trade policy, uh, he clearly struck a chord. And on the other hand, you had the very unfortunate comments that you know Hillary Clinton made about the, the deplorables that got escalated and blown up into something way more than it was. Uh, but but this is a I think this is a frame through which a lot of people are, are, are viewing this issue. And what I worry about is that, you know, since we're in the in the Trump administration, um, that Democrats don't look at this basket of voters in the Midwest who are working class uh, and many of whom are, are, are white, as you pointed out, and completely dismissed their concerns because some of them voted for Donald Trump. Um, you know, the Democratic Party, uh, particularly since the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, has stood for the interests of working class people and has has tried to, uh, to has tried to bolster them and uh, and and. and Holding on to that, recapturing that, and making sure that voters know that the real change agents on issues like trade policy have traditionally been Democrats. Maybe not Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, but certainly people like Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown and Marcy Kaptur, uh, and Rosa DeLauro, uh, and, and many others, and, and to have that come through loud and clear, uh, because otherwise, I, I'm afraid you're right, that if it, if it simply becomes mired in this 
point of view that the working class, particularly in the middle of the country, are just a bunch of Trump supporters and we should dismiss their concerns. In fact, we should do the opposite. Uh, I don't I don't think that that's a path, path to economic success for our nation or electoral success for Democrats. Okay. So, you know, so people understand what – I don't think it's hard. It's a four-letter word. It's jobs, right? That's what Americans want, whether they're in the Rust Belt or not, whether they're among the white working class or not, whether they're Democrat or Republican. You know, this is a win-win uh, regardless. Um, Who is missing what message here? Because and, and what do they need to do? Because you can't just have a message and not deliver. That gets old. Yeah, and this plays into the automation uh, conversation that we were just having as well, where I've seen a lot of uh, elite opinion, you know, on the pages of the New York Times and elsewhere that have said, well, Trump's wrong to focus on manufacturing because all those jobs are going to be done by robots anyway, and just so dismissing the concerns out of hand. Or, you know, he's, he's wrong on trade policy because uh, it's really, you know, the trade deficit is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Or those are jobs that people don't want. We ought to all get four-year college degrees. And, and I hear this thread uh, consistently. Uh, and, I, again, I think that's a very dangerous run because, of it, one, at the, because at the core of this, and, and for most Americans, and again, most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. Uh, having a job is is the most important thing for them, and, and that pathway to a job uh, can often, you know, be found uh, on a factory floor or with some career and technical training, uh, you know, in a, in a hospital or in another setting as well, and to both value those pathways, value that work, uh, and understand it, and, and also to view the working class as, as an integral part of the Democratic Party, uh, I think is very important, and to uh, try to have some understanding about why a big chunk of these voters supported, supported Trump, um, and, 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 and not to necessarily blame them for this, but to uh, recruit and, and win them back. I, I think it's a really important task. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with more and uh, more discussion on this. By the way, uh, Scott and I were talking about some stuff that was in the New York Times in an article written by Joan Williams called The Dumb Politics of Elite Condescension. Condescension. We're going to continue that conversation. And we're going to talk uh, more and more about uh, so many things, what we have to keep in mind as voters for the midterm and for the general election coming up, and uh, why jobs are disappearing. It seems to be trade more than robots. Back with you, back with Scott right after this. Once again, Scott Paul, president for the American Alliance for Manufacturing. Follow them at Ameri- uh, follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM. The website AmericanManufacturing.org. Back with Scott Paul, president for the AAM. Right after this, don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall, uh, live on remote location because I was out of town, not back in the studio today. If you hear a little bit difference in the audio, that is why. We are talking with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and we are talking with Scott about jobs and the upcoming election and what must be done, um, especially uh, by uh, Democrats. And, and I say that not because the AAM is nonpartisan, um, but the uh, Democrats historically have been uh, more of the white working class 
the Rust Belt uh, representatives uh, for voters there. Um, you know, uh, l- l- let's talk, Scott, and thank you for holding and, and welcome back. Right now we're seeing a revolt, right, against people who are angry uh, with Trump. And we've seen a revolt, in a sense, uh, by the election of Donald Trump among the white working class. Um, if, 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 if Republicans have long-term control of Congress, and if Donald Trump wins re-election, he has not just, you know, uh, he's got a Republican majority there, but he also has long-term control of the Supreme Court, um, and there, there's negative impact in certain groups, immigrants, minorities, LGBTQ, uh, women, uh, the poor, um, the, that, that list goes on. Um, but when we, it, there's not just social equality that affects those groups that I mentioned, but that, that social equality extends to employment, doesn't it? I mean, there are employment studies that, that show this, and this can be, in, in a sense, problematic over the long term for that white working class. Yeah, it does, and and it's it's a little bit complicated this way because there is no question that you know among among the working class, as as you know, particularly in the post World War II era when the United States was enjoying economic expansion, not a lot of foreign competition, uh, in the fifties, the sixties, and 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 much of the seventies, uh, that that the you know our middle class boomed. Uh, and, and it disproportionately benefited whites because of discriminatory housing policies and other, other sorts of policies that have been very well documented. Um, and and it's, it's also worth pointing out that certainly since some point in the 1970s, the fortunes of the working class, both black and white, have declined. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the black working class – Felt it first, uh, and 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 felt it felt it most severely, uh, but the the white working class has has felt it as well, and so again for kind of like elite opinions and 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 I know I'm generalizing here because this is not a universally held point of view, but just to say that. Uh, white working class people shouldn't feel so bad because some people are even worse off. Uh, is is not much of a uh, you know of, of of a comforting statement to uh, to a family uh, in a in a small town in a state like Indiana where where I'm from, uh, who's felt the effects of globalization and of this decline and the solutions. And I think this is the important thing. The, the solutions are, are are definitely colorblind and would help uh, African American uh, uh, working class voters, would help white working class voters, would help Latino uh, and Asian working class voters as well. As well, and that's a focus on career and technical education, uh, investing in infrastructure, uh, making sure that workers can earn. Good wages, making sure that we are that we do have uh, opportunities in the global economy, so that we're fighting uh, for fair trade. Uh, but these are all strategies that would that would have broad benefits uh, for the working class. Uh, and so, once again, I think it's I think it's an issue that rather than just being upset that 
you know, in, in the minds of a lot of folks that the, the, the white working class voters elected Donald Trump to, to office and, and, and holding them accountable for this. It's like, look, let's address the class, the, the, the concerns of the working class squarely. Uh, and we're going to do our country a favor, uh, and our and as a side benefit, uh, our party is going to be more competitive uh, in in the next elections, uh, rather than you know rather than dismissing those concerns or trying to demean them in some way. Um, very quickly, um, we got to take a break. When we come back, I just want you to answer uh, one question. When we come out, and then uh, we'll continue our conversation in uh, some other directions as well. Uh, but when we come back, insulting people, like with that deplorable, um, that hurts uh, parties, candidates, elections, and really bad to insult a big part of your base, which was the white working class. Agree or disagree? We'll be back with Scott Paul right after this. We've got to take a break. That's our shortest segment in the hour. I'm Leslie Marshall. Follow him on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM. Website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Check it out back after this. We are back. How you doing? Happy Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend. I am so glad that you can join us, and I'm so glad to have with us Scott Paul, the president for the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. You had mentioned earlier, and I asked you once again, uh, but more specifically, you had mentioned the deplorable comments, and that's one example. But um, did, did Hillary and do Democrats hurt a large part of their base, which is the white working class and the Rust Belt, by insulting individuals such as this. Well, well, they certainly do, and it's also worth pointing out that they're, you know, they're not alone. Uh, that that there's a lot of politicians who have, who have done this. But it is a, uh, you know, it's easy to uh, to stereotype uh, kind of the, uh, America's heartland and. Um, both from a cultural perspective, a social perspective, and an economic perspective. And, uh, you know, voters, they, they want to be heard. They want to be listened to. They want to feel like uh, their leaders are listening to their concerns. And so I think it's an important lesson. And, you know, if you asked you know, if you asked uh, Barack Obama what one of his biggest political mistakes was, he would, you know, he would say, you know, something about a similar comment that he made about people clinging to guns uh, and 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 maybe religion. I can't remember the exact quote, but and 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 certainly Clinton uh, walked back the the the, the comment uh, in a hurry. And one can certainly argue that that Trump has hurled plenty of insults at, at plenty of different. Plenty of different folks, but I think the challenge, in particular these days for Democrats, is that they, if you went into, a, you know, a tavern somewhere in Wisconsin today, which is a state that had voted for Barack Obama in 2012, uh, but flipped over for Donald Trump in 2016. And you said, for instance, you know, who does the Democratic Party stand for? You know, someone like the working, someone from the working class, or uh, or, or, a, or a big city liberal. Uh, I'm going to bet you, and I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that they're going to say a big city liberal. And and it is, uh, and, and and that's a challenge. And so, kind of again, having a focus on economic issues and jobs. Uh, is is going to be really critical uh, for any candidate's success as we move ahead. 
there is an article in the Washington Post which uh, you guys had shared with us, and I, I very much enjoyed, entitled, This Remote Factory is Where Trump May Finally Draw the Line on Trade. It, it talks about a man named Bill Hughes who fought in Iraq in 2003 and how members of his army unit lined their vehicles with scrap metal sandbags and bulletproof vests to protect themselves from roadside bombs. And then his younger brother, Ryan, was in Iraq in 08, and that the vehicles had high-purity aluminum alloys that were much more effective at absorbing the blast. Quote, at the beginning of the Iraq war, the Humvees are folding up like pop cars. It was a really big deal until they started putting the different metals in. Today, those two brothers work side-by-side in the United States. Um, They are in a region where jobs in the metal industry that has been around for decades have rapidly been disappearing from their way of life. And we're speaking specifically in Kentucky about Hawksville and the Hawksville Century Aluminum Company plant. Can you talk to us about that? Because we've talked about steel and we've talked about other metals, and these are essential to the base of manufacturing jobs in areas not just like Hawksville, but other areas in the United States. Leslie, it's a great question, and again, to the extent anybody thinks about aluminum, like uh, you know your 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 average listener at home, it's probably based on the fact that they use aluminum foil uh, or 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 drink a beverage out of an aluminum can. Uh, but it's you know it's a manufacturing commodity. It's been around for uh, a, a, about a century now, uh, and it's a it's a very energy intensive. Uh, uh, type of manufacturing operation, which means that these types of plants are clustered around uh, access to cheap coal or to hydropower, uh, and so there there happened to be a lot, or there ha- there used to be a lot in the Pacific Northwest. But but like with a lot of these manufacturing industries, they've been clobbered by China, where the industry in China is basically owned by the government. Of China, and they have they have no they don't have to you know do a balance sheet the way they do in the United States to show profit and loss, and uh, they they don't operate by the normal rules of trade, and so the aluminum in, industry in the United States has taken a big hit. And about uh, you know twenty twenty five years ago, uh, there were uh, upwards of twenty three. You know, large aluminum smelters, they're called, in the United States. Uh, and today, uh, there are fewer than five. And, and one of these is on the banks of the Ohio River uh, in Kentucky. And again, this is a, this is a, just, just as we were talking about, I mean, this is a community that when they saw the election of Trump, they were like, okay, we might have some, you know, he's talked a tough game on trade. Let's see, uh, let's, let's see if he can keep our jobs here. And, uh, uh, and so right now this administration is doing a, a review of the impact of imports on our aluminum industry, including the potential impacts on national security. And, and you just mentioned from that article that there are, there, there are some incredibly important national security impacts of, of aluminum in terms of the types of alloys uh, that, that aluminum uh, can be made into uh, that helps to protect uh, uh, our troops in armored personnel carriers or uh, that's a part of our aerospace program. And so uh, it's a, I for one, think it's important to have uh, an, a capacity to make aluminum uh, in the United States uh, so, that, so that we can continue to make these types of, of, of alloys here. And it may take a trade action 
to do that. And so th- this community is, is looking seriously at this investigation that's, that's just launched. There'll be a hearing uh, next month at the Commerce Department uh, to see if, if they're going to see some relief uh, and, and if they'll be able to keep those jobs. Because I will tell you, and I've seen these communities, that if, if, a, if a, an aluminum smelter, if a steel factory, if it leaves, that community is forever changed and, and, and not for the better. Not for the better at all. Uh, higher poverty rates, more inequality, uh, worse social outcomes. And so there are serious consequences to these types of questions that we're considering today. We're going to take a quick break and uh, talk again about uh, this. And uh, we're also going to talk about that robot argument a little bit more with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The website for them is AmericanManufacturing.org. And like I said, follow Scott on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM, S-C-O-T-T-P-A-U-L-A-M. I'm Leslie Marshall, back after this is in the house and we're talking about um, a lot of different things um, is there anything else that you wanted to add uh, we were talking about different uh, plants uh, you know another plant is uh, the century plant um, there are jobs in Indiana jobs in Ohio on anything um, you know, more that you wanted to say um, about that Scott because we did talk about the Hawksville area but like we said there are um, other areas and, um, you know, there are regulations that we talk about. There are proposals that the president has made that sounds like, you know, the situation um, in areas of the Rust Belt. Anything more that you want to add to that? Yeah, just very quickly that this is a, uh, again, this is, a, this is like an example, a very tangible example of a trade issue where uh, a, a government action could make a difference. And... Uh, it is not a partisan action. There are a lot of Democrats who want to see the Trump administration take action to protect these aluminum industry workers. Uh, they include Senator Chuck Schumer, who, although he's from New York City, represents the entire state of New York, and, and there's an aluminum smelter uh, in upstate New York that is existentially threatened by Chinese imports. Uh, and so uh, when we were looking for kind of silver linings in terms of this election, uh, something that I know you and I discussed and a lot of other folks as well, it's like, well, maybe we can actually get uh, some better trade policies or maybe we can get some infrastructure investment. Well, this may be one of the first examples where that uh, is able to play out. Uh, but I will, you know, th- these aren't the headlines that are that I'm reading or that you're reading, I'm sure, when it's all about uh, an administration that seems to be uh, caught up in uh, both chaos and, uh, you know, a lot of issues surrounding Russia and conflicting statements uh, overseas and a Congress that once again looks quite gridlocked and and barely functional. Uh, Perhaps, you know, the best that we can hope for is uh, some specific uh, trade action that will help some workers uh, uh, in some parts of the country that could really use it. Um, I want to um, go back to uh, that robot argument, the zombie robot argument. Um, the Economic Policy Institute has written about this, and they find no evidence that automation leads to joblessness or even to inequality. 
And I, I want to go back to that because we only touched upon it in the first segment uh, in this hour. Right now, a lot of people believe this because the media has a lot of stories about robots and automation destroying jobs. And, you know, you and I touched upon briefly that it's really trade or bad trade deals that are doing more to damage uh, the employment and, and the future employment and jobs in this country that, than, the, than these robots and automation. Well, it sure is. It is certainly embedded into our social and cultural images, because if you think about it, uh, can you name a good movie about trade policy? I'd have a hard time naming <laughs> one, but but there are, you know, from the Terminator to a lot of the latest entries for where artificial intelligence is kind of wrong run amok. There are a lot of, of really culturally relevant movies about about the potential impacts of artificial intelligence and, and robots uh, on our future. And so it is, of course, quite scary. And, and on top of that, uh, if you're consuming news, you know, a lot of, again, what you're going to read is how robots are, 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 are taking jobs. And if you look at the factory level, you could probably make the same conclusion. But if you look at the overall data, and how the economy has adapted to this, it's simply not the case that we have absorbed automation in a number of different industries. Workers have acquired new skills. We've, uh, we've managed to invent new products, and we're making those in factories. We've expanded our markets. And so all of this has more than made up for uh, any, jo any job losses that we've seen uh, in automation, although the one thing uh, that has sucked a lot of jobs out uh, has been trade, uh, and in particular the trade deficit we piled up with China uh, since since the year 2000. And this, this Economic Policy Institute report, I think, is spot on because it looks at all the available economic evidence and says, you know, even if you uh, do believe uh, and, and are using kind of the rosiest scenarios, uh, you, you know, and, and looking at, at, at some uh, displacement because of robotics, uh, you can conclude that economy-wide uh, robotics may have displaced somewhere between 600,000 uh, 600, 700,000 jobs uh, over the course of about 17 years. And if you think about the size of our, our labor market, Leslie, uh, that is a drop in the bucket. Over a far shorter period of time, uh, it's very clear uh, that imports from China displaced somewhere between 2 and 2.5 million jobs uh, in our economy and, uh, and had a much higher impact uh, on wages and on inequality because any of the jobs that might have replaced these jobs that were lost to China paid a lot less. Uh, and so if you're looking, again, at kind of uh, it, it sources to be concerned about for job creation, uh, and especially for middle-class jobs, uh, I think you have to look at trade policy first. Uh, you, you'd certainly have to make sure that our workers are skilled uh, to enter into new factories because they certainly will look a lot differently uh, tomorrow than they did uh, than they did. 10 years ago. Uh, but, but I'm, again, I'm, I'm one of these optimists, and I also think that the economic literature points to this as well, is that, that we, we, have, we have far less to worry about uh, with respect to automation and robotics uh, than with some of these other uh, issues uh, related to globalization. And by the way, it's not just about jobs, availability of jobs, but, but also this, this weighs into 
Um, even though we're told automation and technology are responsible for this, it's also not true that automation and technology are responsible for poor wage growth, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and part of it, and this is interesting, is that workers that have been in these professions uh, are, are in some way doing higher skilled things. Think of, because uh, everybody can relate to this, or at least uh, those of us of our generation, Leslie, where you know used to have bank tellers where you used to get cash. And of course, a lot, a lot of bank tellers were displaced by ATMs. Uh, but there are as many people working in financial services and in branch banks today as there were uh, before ATMs. They're providing uh, different types of services. They might be providing loans and, and, and customer relationships, but it requires, uh, in, in many ways, a, a stronger uh, and more advanced skill set. The same goes for factory work, and so those jobs that require more skills tend to pay better. Uh, and so, it, it, on, a, on a net basis, technology automation uh, has not. Uh, has not led to a, a stark increase in inequality. There are many things that have, uh, including the pressure on wages that's come from uh, opening up our markets and exposing them to lower-wage countries like Mexico and China. Oh, what? Oh, oh, God, we are out of time. Scott, I love you, and we will have you back. I'm so sorry that we are out of time already. Uh, time just flies when I talk to you. The uh, robots ate our time, Leslie. Yes, oh, absolutely, because it's good time. Um, Scott, thank you for joining us. Once again, we'll be talking to you soon. Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Uh, please follow him on Twitter, at Scott Paul AAM. Uh, coming up here in uh, just a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Patrick. Uh, uh, oh, actually, wait a minute. Is Scott with us still, or did I, I let him go too early? I think we still have him. Okay, good. Scott, you know what? Um, my bad. I made a mistake, and, you know, this is what happens when you don't listen to your executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, right? <laughs> um, you, know, you, you know what, Scott, in, in an information where a lot of people believe there's fake news, why, why did the media narrative start with this whole robotic automation thing, and why does it stick? I mean, why isn't there any fact-check fact stuff calling them out on this? Uh, and, uh, why, why do they keep with this narrative and why do people continue to believe it? Yeah, well, there's been some compelling theories about it, and we, and, and we certainly talked about the cultural relevance and the kind of exposure that people have to movies uh, about this. And so, um, and it's probably easier to grasp for someone uh, than than global trade and exchange rates and dumping and subsidies. Uh, and so, it makes perfect sense that this would seem a lot more daunting. Uh, but but it's it, again, it's simply not the case. What has always happened in our economy, and we've had waves of automation and, and waves of robotics uh, uh, for, for decades now, since the end of World War II. Uh, and the result has been what we would call upskilling uh, and, and finding new products uh, to, 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 to make and new services to provide. Uh, and, and our economy has been very adaptive and entrepreneurial, and, and we've been able to to climb the ladder, uh, and so if we're in the danger of focusing on automation and robotics alone, is that there we have a big trade problem, and it's not going to go away whether there's robots or no robots, and so that's where some of the focus should be, Leslie. Well, the other thing is there's no evidence of an upsurge in automation. I mean, in over a decade, 10 to 15 years, is is you know that is not what has affected the overall uh, joblessness. Um, you know, could it be uh, to stand on a grassy knoll conspiracy theory, wise Scott, 
some, you know, top corporations feeding this misinformation to the media because, you know, these companies don't want to focus on the fact that they continue to send jobs overseas and haven't brought those jobs back, those manufacturing jobs back to America. Look, I think that's a really good point is that they, you know, it's a way to deflect attention from some of their cost-cutting and some of their outsourcing. There is no question about that. Look, I would say there's some serious questions that we have to, to look at. Like, you know, if there are driverless trucks, what does that do to the trucking industry? And it, it right. undoubtedly will reshape it in many ways. But does it mean that as a whole our economy is going to is, is going to lose jobs and is going to that's sink into wider inequality. And, and I think that's what this Economic Policy Institute study suggests, is that no, that, not wow. at all, that there are many other policies that, that have an impact. But the fact that we just have automation or robotics alone doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see widespread joblessness. Scott Paul, President of the Alliance for American Manufacturers, Venner Guest, I'm Leslie Marshall. Always more to come on the only True Democracy in Talk Radio. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Botox. 